It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm June Grasso, sitting in for Joe Matthew. In the first votes cast in the 2024 presidential race, Donald Trump tightened his grip on the Republican presidential nomination with Iowa voters delivering him a commanding win in last night's caucuses, moving him one step closer to returning to the White House. Trump won 51 percent of the vote with rivals Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley not even close. DeSantis came in second, winning 21.2 percent and Haley close behind, capturing 19.1 percent. Here to discuss what it all means and how it happened is Terry Haynes, founder of Bangia Policy. Thanks for joining us, Terry. Thank you, June. Appreciate it. So it seemed like the caucuses were over before they began. What's the significance of Trump coming in with a majority of the votes here? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a non-consensus view about that, uh, frankly. Uh, Trump was expected to come in with about 50 percent of the vote. And surprise, surprise, that's exactly what he came pretty much exactly what he came in with. Um, four takeaways for you. First, there's still a competitive race since uh 50% or more Republican voters don't want Trump, and there are only two not-Trump candidates left, uh, either of which could carry that 50% forward. Uh, secondly, I think a former president, uh, which is losing half of his party's primary voters, is not good news for that candidate, even though he did win. Uh, thirdly, looking ahead to New Hampshire next week, uh, you're likelier to see a com- more competitive race there since Trump is polling low to mid 40s and uh, and you and right now based on polling you can expect a surge uh, largely from Haley uh, fourthly I think and I think this is not well understood at all but the uh, the polling in Iowa particularly the Iowa poll from the Des Moines Register showed that said that 30 percent of likely caucus goers uh, would not support Trump in the and would not vote for Trump in the general election, whether or not Trump, if they'd voted for Trump in the uh, the caucus. Uh, that, to me, presages a uh, Republican Party split that I've been talking about for some time. But as far as the numbers that we see now and what we see ahead, doesn't it appear that Trump is going to wrap it up? No, I don't think so at all. Based on right now, no, I don't think so at all. Uh, if what you've got is a situation where uh, where he wins the Iowa caucuses, but let's remember he wins with just over half the overall vote that uh, that came through in the caucuses in 2016. Uh, 
he gets sort of the not Trump side uh, gets almost as many delegates as Trump did uh, out of Iowa. Uh, number one, number two, New Hampshire is uh, right now based on polling uh, more more competitive than Iowa. Uh, so you're going to have a competitive race and where nothing is going to happen for the month after New Hampshire. Uh, so I think what you're going to see is you're going to see three main candidates, Trump, Haley and DeSantis, um, all scratching and biting for uh, for advantage. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of, uh, of visits from Haley and DeSantis to Midtown Manhattan to uh, pick up additional money and additional support there. Uh, and I think it's uh, right now it's still anybody's ball game. Uh, if you've got a situation where uh, you're not going to have another vote until late uh, late February in South Carolina or early March in the Super Tuesday states, uh, that's an awful lot of time in politics. <laughs> it certainly is. So DeSantis and Haley seem to be just battling each other rather than Trump. And, you know, their numbers are just about the same. So what did they learn, if anything, from Iowa? Uh, I think what they learned is uh, that they need to be on top in order to be the candidate that consolidates the not Trump vote. Uh, what you have, if you're uh, if you're DeSantis and Haley, and you're thinking about this, what you think is first, you know, I've leapfrogged everybody else. Now my task is I've got to leapfrog the other the other not Trump candidate. I've got to be the alternative to Trump. The vast majority of that 50 percent vote comes to me, uh, and then I can duke it out with Trump. I mean that that is. Uh, that is what they're thinking about right now. Trump polls strongly with working class white voters. He won with white evangelical Christians who are nearly half of the caucus goers in Iowa. Is there any chance for DeSantis or Haley to pick off those voters? Oh, I think some. Uh, Iowa, I think, is uh, is unique or unusual in the in both uh, the amount of evangelicals that exist and how and how much and how well they're organized. Frankly, um, yeah, sure, they could do that. Uh, but what you're, I think, what you're seeing is a situation where you know Trump is kind of topping at fifty percent right now. Uh, he's not going to be fifty uh, percent in New Hampshire, almost certainly. If he does, uh, you know, we'll have a different narrative next week. But uh, almost certainly, uh, he doesn't uh, get to fifty percent or close to it. Uh, you will have a more competitive race, uh, and then what you're going to have is you're going to have a free for all in the first two weeks of March, uh, where the voters start sorting themselves out. Uh, so right now, uh, it's very much anybody's race, and uh, there are a lot of variables here. Uh, you know, including uh, the desire to want to stop Trump from getting the nomination. You know, that I, I think, frankly, haven't crystallized yet. So Haley is heading to New Hampshire. DeSantis is heading to South Carolina. Tell us about the importance of New Hampshire. Well, I think New Hampshire is much more of a hinge uh, for the race than Iowa might be. You know, uh, your colleague Mike McKee points out that, uh, you know, drilled down even farther than I did on uh, on results in, in uh, discussing this today, and, you know, points out essentially that there's about two and a half percent of Iowans that, uh, that actually voted in the Iowa caucus. And this is a state that has a 75 percent 
or had it in 2020, a 75% turnout rate uh, statewide. So this is a very, very tiny sliver of uh, of Iowans generally. Um, New Hampshire, I think, is more of a more of a hinge because what you have is a situation where uh, Haley looks like she's surging, looks like she's competitive, and the not Trump vote today exceeds the Trump vote. Uh, and, and so if that's a trend and that continues over the next month or so, uh, you know, then you've got a, a much bigger race. But if over the next week Trump tamps that down and and, uh, and New Hampshireites come away from this thinking, well, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to vote for Trump over Haley, let's say, um, then that narrative gets shot to pieces. Uh, but right now it's still much, very much anybody's ballgame in New Hampshire. And what happens in New Hampshire, frankly – uh, flavors the race going forward where people will spend the next month after New Hampshire saying, well, is Trump, you know, is Trump actually invincible? Well, you know, seems like he was in Iowa, but maybe not in New Hampshire. And uh, that provides alone provides some running room for Haley and DeSantis to try to keep consolidating the vote. And DeSantis going to South Carolina and basically skipping New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. What is he giving up by doing that? Uh, well, he's giving up uh, New Hampshire competitiveness, obviously, but the uh, but but DeSantis's uh, DeSantis's idea all along was he was going to go as hard into Iowa as he possibly could. He was going to be as well organized as possible. That probably brought him the uh, the the scraping out the second place uh, that in fact happened. He got the endorsement of the vast majority of the regulars in the Iowa Republican Party from uh, Governor Reynolds on down. And he also got the evangelical endorsement. Uh, I think he thinks that he could play whatever the whatever the result in New Hampshire is. He can play well in South Carolina, firstly. Secondly, it's it's an awfully good opportunity for him to go take Haley out, uh, since if she's weak in her own home state, uh, DeSantis would think uh, that would that would turn the not Trump uh, side of the vote, uh, much more to DeSantis. So do you think that DeSantis has an advantage over Haley at this point? Uh, I think it's a little too soon to say. What you've got is a situation, I don't have the uh, the exact numbers in front of me, but you've, you've got a situation where DeSantis' DeSantis's second place is basically eked out about 4,000 more votes than Haley did with about, uh, on you know, Haley and DeSantis together, uh, roughly about forty-five to fifty thousand votes cast. So, uh, you know, I think he probably thinks he he has the ability to have an advantage over Haley if he spends a month hammering away in South Carolina. It's certainly, that that will uh, that will weaken Haley and uh, and enhance his chances to some extent. But I doubt very much that he sees the uh, the opportunity uh, to be free and clear. I think this is going to be a, a a race for the nut for the half of the vote that's not Trump uh, for the next uh, four to five weeks, frankly. And as far as fundraising. Does DeSantis have more of an uphill battle there than Haley? Um, right now, right now, and I mean this includes Wall Street, of course. But right now, a lot of the Wall Street money has gone to Haley, frankly, because uh, based on polling, uh, Haley has uh, seems to be a better matchup 
candidate against Biden in the fall general election, and uh, certainly what a lot of uh, deep-pocketed Wall Street people have wanted, and a lot of other people have wanted, uh, is a candidate that most clearly can beat Biden and most clearly is business-friendly. Both of these candidates are certainly business-friendly, where Haley's advantage is that she looks more electable. Uh, it's going to be up to DeSantis to counter that narrative. Uh, he does, to some extent already, by talking about, you know, he's the only person that's actually got a track record of doing a bunch of things that are business friendly and uh, and economically positive. Uh, but he's going to have to ramp that up in order to uh, separate himself from Haley, I think. So does he have to win one of these early states in order to continue? Uh, well, I think what he has to do is he has to have a very good showing in South Carolina, or it's going to be difficult for him. And then he's going to have a situation where there are uh, in the first two weeks of March alone, there's something there's something like uh, something like eleven primaries and six caucuses. I mean, a real uh, a real dump of uh, of information and voting all at once. Uh, his job is going to have to be. Uh, coming out looking like the better alternative than Haley uh, in the early Super Tuesday states in order to remain viable. So tell us more. You think that if Trump is the nominee, the Republican Party won't unite behind him, even though you hear even from uh, the the former governor of New Hampshire, well, if it's Trump, I'll vote for Trump. Of course, I'll support the Republican nominee. You think that that won't happen. Republicans won't fall in line. I'll take the quote that you just gave me. Um, I will vote for Trump and I will support the nominee. Uh, what isn't said there is that I will actively go out and try to and, and try to make the nominee win. <laughs> Uh, I think what you're going to have is a situation and, you know, this is developing and I think it develops into the spring and summer, frankly. But if Trump is the nominee, uh, you're going to have a situation where uh, Republican luminaries in the Republican Party are going to are going to say to themselves, what's better for me? Uh, Is it better for me to. Firstly, uh, say I won't vote for Trump and you shouldn't either. Or should I say I'm going to, like, you know, I'll absolutely support the nominee, but then absolutely do nothing uh, other than say that in order to support? Uh, you know, there's that, number one. Number two, uh, I point out the, uh, and have for the last several days, uh, one of the most interesting findings of the Iowa poll, uh, the, Des Moines, the Des Moines Register runs, a very accurate uh, kind of gold standard poll, which showed that, that about 30% of Iowans uh, who were going to vote in the caucuses said they wouldn't support Trump in the general. Uh, I think you get a voter split here, too. And, uh, you know, the way I look at uh, Trump and have looked at him for some time is a lot like a pig and a python. Um you know, what's what's really if you're an office holder, if you're a Republican, what I call a Republican luminary, your interest is in getting past Trump as much as possible. Uh, you know, if you if you're not enamored uh, of, of Trump in the party, uh, you know, you want him past you. If you if you're very enamored with Trump, but, the, but he loses, well, then maybe you become more prominent as a result of that. Uh, but either way, the way to get past Trump is to uh, is to have him lose. And uh, and, you know, that, that's the way politicians think. And I think uh, you'll see a lot more of that coming up. Terry, I think we'll leave it with Pig and the Python. And thank you so much for being with us. That's Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It was Taiwan's most hotly contested election in decades, and Taiwan elected current Vice President Lai Ching-Dae as leader of the country at the center of U.S.-China tensions putting in power a man Beijing has branded an instigator of war. What happens next is anyone's guess. Joining us is Sean King, Senior Vice President at Park Strategies. Sean, just set the stage a little bit. Explain China's warnings before the election. Beijing had said, well, you know, Beijing is uncomfortable even discussing Taiwan's elections because their theory is that people who are Chinese are incompatible with Western-style democracy. So even acknowledging that people in Taiwan have a choice to their leader sort of uh, betrays their own system at home. But they had let it be known that they were interested in either one of the opposition candidates winning and not the current vice president, who is now the president-elect. So if anybody at all listened to what Beijing was saying, however, Cryptically, they said it, they rejected it. And now, um, so the, the situation is China says Taiwan is part of China, even though the Communist Party that is, has never controlled Taiwan. What is this a source of continuing you know, uh, animosity between China and the U.S.? And does this election threaten to ratchet that up? Well, starting first in the late 17th century, Taiwan has been part of China for a total of 217 years, but only for four years since 1895 and not at all since 1949, at least governed by the mainland. But the fact is that it's never been under PRC control and the P PLA, the People's Liberation Army, has never set foot on any part of Taiwan. So even though Taiwan has been part of China historically at different points in its history, and before that, it was actually home to Dutch and Spanish settlements and settled originally by Austronesian Aboriginal peoples, it's never been under PRC control. So if you listen to Mao and Kissinger from the old days and PRC officials today, 
Taiwan is the main irritant or the main issue in U.S. PRC relations, because until 1979, we recognized the government in Taipei as the Chinese government, as opposed to Beijing. We never recognized Taiwan as Taiwan per se, but we just recognized the government there as the sole legitimate Chinese government. So for us, I think the issues with the PRC are much bigger, whether it's freedom of religion, freedom of expression, the South China Sea, Beijing's backstopping North Korea. There are a lot of different things at play. It's, you know, refusal to take a clear moral stand on the Ukraine war. But for Beijing, the Taiwan issue is front and center because the Communist Party of China has staked itself on Chinese nationalism and also getting Taiwan would allow it to project naval power into the Western Pacific. So then, right now, I would say, especially from Beijing's side, Taiwan is the number one issue in USPRC relations. So then how big of a loss was this for Beijing to have Taiwan ignoring its warnings, however subtle they may have been? Well, the fact that people on Taiwan are voting at all is a loss for Beijing, but this in particular is an extra special loss. But people have been ignoring or turning their noses up at Beijing's warnings ever since 1996. In 1996, when Taiwanese had the audacity or temerity, as you would hear PRC officials say it, to actually vote for their first freely elected president, Li Dongwei, who got his PhD at Cornell, I might add, mm -hmm. uh, they shot missiles into the Taiwan Strait, hoping to intimidate people from going to the polls. Even more people showed up. When Zhu Rongji, the premier of the PRC in 2000, voted people not to vote for Chen Shui-bian, he did end up winning in a three-way race, and most people think that got Chen at least two to three extra points in the polls. So I'm sure whatever interference Beijing tried this time only made people more sympathetic to Lai. Also, former Taiwan President Ma Ying-jeou, who's drifted closer to the PRC in retirement, said that Taiwanese would welcome unification so long as it's peaceful and told Deutsche Welle, German TV, that Taiwanese should trust Xi Jinping. That, I'm sure, only increased uh, support for Lai. But even the KMT candidate, who's thought to be China friendly, which is kind of a mischaracterization, he's native Taiwanese, he spoke in native Taiwanese, and he rejected Beijing's Hong Kong one country, two systems proposal for Taiwan. Only one to two percent of people on Taiwan support immediate unification of any kind. So for years and years, and even more so echoed on Saturday, Taiwanese categorically reject any overture from the mainland. Is there a fear among Taiwanese that China might take some action, you know, military exercises or otherwise in light of the election returns? We seem to be more worried about Taiwan security than Taiwanese themselves are. Uh, after Nancy Pelosi, a freely elected leader, was welcomed to Taiwan by another freely elected leader and exchanged in democratic exercise and exchange of ideas. Beijing, of course, did these made for Hollywood exercises around Taiwan. And you know, most people there in Taiwan, they've learned to live with it. You know, for 70 years, they've feared uh, Beijing invading the island. So, yes, I mean, this is on their mind long term, but it's not going to stop them from living their lives. And they don't expect any immediate action, in, nor do I. You know, people compare it to Ukraine, but I don't see the comps. Uh, Russian soldiers were able to waltz across an unguarded Ukrainian land border where many senior Russian officials had actually served in the Soviet army. It's 100 miles between Taiwan and the mainland. Rough seas. We would see it coming. And Biden has said four times we would defend Taiwan in case of attack, even though there's obviously no treaty obligation to do so because you can't have a treaty with someone you don't recognize. But I think that Taiwan is too important for the free world to lose. So the U.S. would intervene if Beijing unprovoked attacked the island. So most people don't expect 
a, an invasion anytime soon. And I that that's my feeling as well. Well, those are good words, good thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. That's Sean King, Park Strategies Senior Vice President. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Fresh off his victory in the Iowa Republican caucuses, Donald Trump arrived in a Manhattan courtroom this morning for the next trial of his crowded legal calendar. This time in a defamation lawsuit by E. Jean Carroll, the writer who won a separate sexual abuse case against him last year. My guest is Dave Ehrenberg, the Palm Beach County State Attorney. He joins us in our New York studios. Dave, you left sunny Palm Beach to be here in New York for the snowstorm. And there's no place I'd rather be. All right. (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. Well, Donald Trump is here, too. He continues his tour of courtrooms around the country, like the D.C. appellate court last week. He doesn't have to be in the courtroom, but he is for the very beginning of the trial. So what do you make of this? Is he trying to impact the jury or impact the voters? impact the voters. This is all about public relations. This case has already been lost. The judge said we're not going to relitigate the past trial, which said, according to the jury, that Donald Trump committed sexual assault against E. Jean Carroll and committed defamation against her. So now we're just talking about damages. How many millions in compensatory and possible punitive damages will be assessed? So the only reason why Trump is there, I think, is to try to gain political points to show that he is uh, being derided as the leading candidate for president. This is the Biden administration doing this, even though that doesn't make sense. And ultimately, nothing fuels his MAGA base more than martyrdom and grievance. Now, I want to talk about what his defense could possibly be here because the judge has basically cut off every avenue of defense that I can see. He can't say that the he can't deny that sexual abuse happened or that he believed his statements were true. He can't comment on Carol's prior romantic relationships or the lack of DNA. I mean, what is his defense here? He doesn't have a defense. In fact, I don't think it's a good move for him to try to testify because if he tries to pull what he did in the New York civil fraud trial in this trial, he's going to get sanctioned. He's going to get cut off. This is a jury trial. This is not a bench trial like the last trial. And you have a federal judge and Judge Kaplan who's not messing around. Judge Ngoron, a state court judge in New York, gave him a uh, wider latitude and he allowed Trump to bash the judge and the process and the attorneys. That's not going to happen here. And in this case, he's limited to what he can say. As you correctly pointed out, they can't relitigate the last case. He can't attack E. Jean Carroll. And so what is he going to say? He's not going to be able to go on a political rant. So there really is nothing he could say that could influence a jury here. Best he just not testify at all. So he says he wants to testify. Of course, he said he wanted to testify at the last E. Jean Carroll uh, trial. So Who knows? The judge is saying that he can do so if he wants to testify on Monday, January 22nd, which is the day before the New Hampshire primary. So maybe. Maybe. Well, he had a lawyer the last time, this uh, Takapina guy. And Takapina and, and Trump split up. They just had a divorce, and he's being represented now, Trump is, by Alina Haba. And Alina Haba is gung-ho on Trump testifying. The word was that Takopina did not want Trump to testify. So this is Trump 
uh, saying, I am going to do it. I'm going to show that the whole process is a fraud. But he's not going to be allowed to testify that way. So in the end, I think he just does what he's done before, which is to promise that he's going to testify. But then in the end, he does not. So Joe Tacopina is a well-experienced trial lawyer. So there is the reason why he doesn't want Trump to testify. Alina Haba, I don't think has much trial experience at all. And again today, she was, um, you know, sort of the same thing that happened in the trial, the New York trial. They seem to be trying to get on the judge's bad side, challenging the judge and, you know, arguing with the judge. I mean, in the New York trial, in the in the trial that was ended last week with Judge Angoran, I mean, it was it was crazy some of the things that they did and said to this judge who was going to be making the decision without a jury. So. I'm not sure about her courtroom tactics. Now, one of the first things they teach you in law school is never upset the person (laughs) wearing the black robe and wielding that gavel. Big mistake, but yet they keep doing it, and they got away with it with Judge Angoron because they knew their goose was cooked in the New York civil fraud case. So what do they have to lose? But by attacking Judge Angoron, I think it gave Trump a false sense of confidence that he can do it again. This is a federal judge. We're talking about lifetime appointments, and these guys run their courtroom like a tight ship, and there's no way that Trump's going to be able to get away with any of this stuff, especially because it is a jury trial. So although he promises he's going to testify— I think this is like other promises where he said he he would uh, promise to testify earlier in the New York civil fraud case, which then he, he didn't do, or in the first trial in this matter, he said he would testify and he didn't do, uh, just like he said he would meet with Bob Mueller during the investigation, which he didn't do, and just like he said he was going to have a health care plan that comes out in two weeks. Oh, you're going back far now, but you have a lot to work with. Uh, so what's interesting is the counsel for E. Jean Carroll, Roberta Kaplan, expressed concern in recent days that Trump would attempt to turn the trial into a circus. And she suggested the judge be prepared to hold Trump or his lawyers in contempt of court or issue punitive fines and monetary sanctions. Was that necessary for her or just for publicity? Everyone knows Judge Kaplan. Judge Kaplan is no nonsense, and he's not going to, he doesn't need, it seems to me, direction from an attorney how to run his courtroom. I agree. Judge Kaplan uh, is not going to suffer fools lightly. And I do understand why Miss Kaplan, no relation, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, wanted Trump to say under oath that I will not violate the court's order. But you know what? She also wanted Trump to admit under oath that he committed sexual assault against E. Jean Carroll. And although the jury found it, in our country, we still don't force defendants to incriminate themselves or to say certain things like, I did it, I'm guilty. So I think she was asking for too much, and the judge is not going to go there. What's unusual in this case is you talk about secret juries, anonymous juries. This jury is so anonymous that the judge issued an order. Uh, First of all, he issued an order that bars Trump and his team from saying a lot of the things that they have said before. But he told potential jurors that if they're selected for the trial, they should use fake names when discussing the case with each other. And they wouldn't be permitted to disclose their role to anyone, including family members. So this judge is trying to avoid what we've seen Trump before do, which is issue these sort of either direct or indirect threats. 
Yeah, I've seen anonymous juries before, but I, I've never seen an order where you can't even communicate with each other using your real name. But it makes sense. You want this to be airtight. But it really tells you what kind of political culture we're in now, what kind of country we're in now, where you have the threat of violence against your political and legal opponents. That's so pervasive that you need an anonymous jury like you do in mafia cases when you are trying a former president and the leading candidate for president in the Republican side. This should never be normalized. The fact that the person who won the Iowa caucuses has to get on a plane and go to a courtroom where he's already been found liable for sexual assault should never be normalized in this country. Well, also, increasingly, judges are being threatened. In fact, in the civil fraud trial before the closing arguments, Judge Engeron was also threatened. And it's it's very difficult to, you know, to be able to protect the judges now another you know another kind of area where we hadn't been used to that before yeah you know judges get their houses swatted they get threatened their families get threatened and you know we just seem to accept that this is not how a functioning democracy is supposed to work we're not a fascist country at least not yet and you're not supposed to uh, threaten your political or legal enemies but that is what certain elements of the MAGA movement have done and look it's not everyone but you have extremists within the movement who think that anyone who attacks the leader needs to be threatened and and really possibly even killed and that is absolutely unacceptable and we need leaders to stand up and say no this is not to go on any longer now Trump what's curious to me, but he's escalated his attacks against E. Jean Carroll. He's repeated what's already been determined in the last trial to be defamatory. So after his, after the, actually it wasn't after the close of the closing arguments last week, it was during the, during the New York Attorney General's closing arguments, Trump held his own press conference downtown in his building, uh, on, in, on the Woolworth building, and um, he repeated that he'd never heard of her before. He didn't know who she was. So, I mean, are we going to keep having trial after trial after trial if he repeats the defamation? Yes, until the cost of saying these things is so great, where he gets hit with such punitive damages that it's not worth it anymore. So, one of two things has to happen for this to stop. Either the punitive damages in this case or a subsequent case has to be so great that he decides it's not worth it, or he actually gets a political hit from it where his poll numbers drop, and then I think he'll back away from it. But right now, neither of these things has happened. He got fined $5 million in the first case. That's not enough for him to change his behavior, and he just won the Iowa caucus. So as long as he keeps winning, he's not going to change his behavior. Let's turn to... It could, it could come down this week. Let's turn to the case of Trump's claim of absolute presidential immunity in the D.C. Circuit Court. And the question that was heard around the country from uh, Judge Florence Pan about whether or not he could assassinate, you could assassinate your political rivals and still, and get away with it because of presidential immunity. Um, do you think that's going to come fast, that decision? I do. And you can see by the judge's questioning, it it was just such a no-brainer where, of course, a president doesn't have absolute immunity. Of course, they can't kill their political rivals. And look, it's not so funny when it happens to the other guys. So if you give Joe Biden this kind of power, he can cancel the election, arrest Donald Trump, and be president for life. So, of course, they're not going to rule for absolute immunity. Now, the question is, how long will the decision take? I think it'll be soon. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has expedited its review. And then the question is, when? It's not an if. When D.C. Circuit rules against Trump, 
What does the Supreme Court do? I would bet that they're going to defer to the D.C. Circuit and deny review, and then it's game on in the election interference case in Washington, D.C. I agree with you, but we are in the minority, I have to say. I think we're in the minority. I think a lot of you know, legal scholars, legal experts think the Supreme Court has to take that case, has to make the decision, but they already have so many different issues related to the election coming up that I'm not sure they want to, you know, go into another one yet. Right. This is a no-brainer. This is not a hard one. And the Supreme Court, I think, would rather deal with other things. And it'd be easy. I think the reason why the Supreme Court, one of the reasons why they denied their own expedited review, because remember, Jack Smith wanted the Supreme Court to bigfoot the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. And and they said, no, we're going to let the D.C. Circuit handle it. I think one reason why they did that was that they were going to defer to the ruling of the D.C. Circuit, knowing they would deny presidential absolute immunity. And do you think that the decision will just be we're denying? denying absolute presidential immunity, or the judges might have to set out some of the parameters where presidential immunity might apply? Judges generally like to rule on the narrowest issue possible. Don't get too ambitious, especially when there's an expedited review. So I think they're just going to deny it here. I don't think they're going to go much further because you do that, then you open it up to more delays. And this case, the one in Washington, D.C. for election interference is the one that's most likely to be tried before the election. It's, in that sense, the most important case because all the others, I think, with the possible exception of the New York State case on Stormy Daniels, will be tried after the election. So that's why I think these courts want to get it started as soon as possible. Now, the judge, Judge Tanya Chutkin, has not, she's sort of put everything on hold, but she hasn't actually, you know, taken it off the docket, the March 5th trial. Do you think that there's any way they could meet that? If, let's say, the D.C. Circuit comes down this week and says no presidential immunity, the Supreme Court says, no, we're not going to review it, how long? Oh, then then it's immediate. I, I think also the D.C. Circuit will remove the gag, uh, excuse me, the stay, the stay of the case immediately. And then it goes to Tanya Chutkin, Judge Chutkin. She will calendar it. Now, it's set for March 4th. I think within 60 days of that is the trial day. That's what I have been saying from the beginning. I'm going to stick to my prediction. And this case will be decided well before the election. And you see the polls, even though Trump won pretty handily in Iowa, still a certain segment that says if he's found guilty of in one of these trials, people would switch their vote away from him. And um, very quickly, very briefly, what about your Florida trial down there on classified documents? You have a date for that? It's scheduled to go in May. It ain't going. Here's the thing. Judge Cannon is slow walking this case. That case in my neck of the woods is the strongest of all the four cases against Trump. He has no defense, but that case is going to be delayed past the election, and that's a shame. It is a shame. I'm so happy that you came in today, though, through all the snow. It was hard for me to get in from 79th Street to 59th Street, so <laughs> I appreciate your coming in from uh, however you got here from Palm it's, Beach. It's worse. It's frozen rain now. <laughs> you know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. 
But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The drowning deaths of a woman and two children in the Rio Grande River as they tried to enter the United States from Mexico on Friday have intensified tensions between Texas and the federal border officials. U.S. border officials say Texas officers prevented federal border officials from helping them, and that is in dispute. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight and the former head of the Office of Immigration Litigation in the Obama administration. Leon, what happened, what do we know happened on Friday because it seems like there were conflicting reports? Well, there, there were conflicting reports, including one from Congressman Henry Cuellar, who's the esteemed congressman along the border. And so the Department of Justice actually filed a brief in the Supreme Court that actually discussed this issue slightly more. And it seems like there were six migrants that were actually in distress, but three by the time the, so the Mexican government reported this to the Department of Homeland Security, and by the time the Department of Homeland Security would have responded, it seems like, even if Texas had let them in, three of them would have already been found deceased, unfortunately. There were two others that were rescued by the Mexican government that presumably would have been rescued by the Border Patrol had they been allowed to enter. But there is no dispute that the Texas state officials are blocking this park in Eagle Pass, Texas, and not permitting the Department of Homeland Security officials enter the park, which the Department of Homeland Security uh, officials say is a violation of their right to, to enter in times of emergency, that they have a federal right under the Supremacy Clause to do that. And do you agree? Which side do you agree with? Does Texas have the right or does the Department of Homeland Security have the right? It's clear that if there's any kind of transnational emergency that's happening on the border, that the federal officials have the ability to access the border to be able to respond to that transnational emergency. Where they can't necessarily do things is that they were just patrolling this park and the state of Texas said, this is our park to patrol. The federal officials don't have jurisdiction here. That's fine. But in these situations of an emergency, there's no doubt that the federal government has the authority to enter. And so the Texas government not allowing them to enter will probably lead at some point to some sort of injunctive relief. 
that will then, if it happens again, could lead to contempt of court findings. So Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been escalating the tensions with the federal government over immigration at the border. Is this Was this part of the new law that's been passed that hasn't gone into effect yet, where Texas says that it can, its local officers can arrest migrants, which is normally what is a job for the federal government? Well, this is part of that overall strategy. The law itself, what it's going to do is it's going to say that if you're not in Texas legally, it's a misdemeanor that you can then be taken to the border. And if you don't actually cross back into Mexico, you can be rearrested again for a felony. And so all of these areas that are being enclosed are part of this overall strategy to be able to have places to take people to along the border and say, here are your two choices, either go back into Mexico or if you try to come back in, we will arrest you under the Texas law. Of course, the legality of that Texas law is currently under review at the courts and is probably going to work its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. So, Leon, this is all part of the bigger problem of immigration and the security at the southern border. And in the Iowa caucuses, that was one of the major concerns of the caucus goers there, of course, Republicans, but one of the major concerns. What is the status there? We were talking before about negotiations over immigration among you know lawmakers. I haven't heard about that for a while. What's the status of that? Well, one of the biggest problems happened the last few days where uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson said that he thought that there wasn't any legislation that would be able to be created by this Senate group of negotiators that would be acceptable to the House such that this needed President Trump to be able to come in and be able to solve this problem. And that what President Biden needed to do was just unilaterally act with any powers that he had, but that the legislation to solve the border problem would be too weak if it was the current legislation that's being talked about by the Senate. I don't think that's gonna be the last word. I think that's posturing in many cases. I do think the White House wants a deal. The White House has actually brought in all the relevant negotiators and chairmen to speak later today at the White House to try to get a deal. The White House very much wants a deal. They're negotiating in areas that make many very Democrats very uncomfortable with regard to what kinds of limitations they're they're willing to accept along the border. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to can the Senate pass something? And if the Senate can pass something on a bipartisan basis, then they can make the House look really badly uh, if they refuse to pass something. Then it becomes evident that the House would be the ones blocking progress. And there are some areas where the Senate negotiators have come to agreement, right? Absolutely. The Senate has some spots with regard to sort of a re-implementation of Title 42 authority, which was the authority to automatically expel people at the border who don't come in through the ports of entry who actually try to come in illegally in between the ports of entry with limited exceptions for very extreme humanitarian cases. Also an expansion of detention for those kinds of people who enter the United States and are waiting for their cases to be heard. But the area that's not yet resolved is there are these 30,000 people per month 
that the Biden administration is allowing legally to enter the United States from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, that the Biden administration argues is necessary so that people don't enter illegally, so that people wait in their countries and apply for this program. The Republicans want that program eliminated, and they also want it to be eliminated that basically under almost all circumstances that the Biden administration couldn't find someone with urgent circumstances on the border and admit them illegally. And so those two areas are under debate about whether those will be accomplished or not. Thanks so much, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.